Today on The Black Goat, how should faculty interact with grad students who aren't their advisees? And a letter about putting your name on a manuscript you feel iffy about. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett, as always. And Alexa, the the background looks a little different in in your your home. There's there's big bundles of wheat and uh, wool <laughs> and lumber uh, just piled up. It looks like you're stockpiling things. Can you tell us what's going on? When you started to uh, describe that, I was like, "Where is he going with this?" <laughs> <laughs> that was um, a very creative introduction, Sanjay. Yeah. So um, so some people might know this about me, but I've been consistently fairly opposed to the game Settlers of Catan. Um, I have sort of mixed feelings about board games in general, and I've tried to like figure out what it is about some board games that I like and like what it is that distinguishes the ones that I like from the ones that I don't. Um, but I've always put Settlers of Catan in the like category of board games I don't like. Um, and I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that, and this now I'm just going to make myself like even more unpopular in a much more generalizable domain. But I think like things that evoke sort of like fantasy y stuff, I'm like, eh, I'm not into it. <laughs> oh, um, you just stepped Yeah, I know. Up. I just like, I just offended literally everyone. <laughs> Especially, I'm, I'm guessing our listenership has probably, like, a higher than the general population <laughs> proportion of, like, people into that kind of stuff. Yeah, mm. right. Yeah. So what what was it? So, so, so you, but you, yeah, like, you just so, had this, like, aversion to, like, Settlers of Catan was, like, oh, speculative worlds, that's crap. Yeah, I think that's partly that. And then there's something about, like, the degree of luck that is involved in a game um, that affects how much I like the game, but I can't, I haven't figured out exactly what it is. Like, for example, I like chess a lot. Um, but then I also like poker and that's very probabilistic. I don't know. Um, so I'm not sure. But anyways, I've started to get sucked into a weekly board game night, which I think is mostly going to consist of Sellers of Catan. Um, and I'm sort of coming around to it. I mean, the first time somebody described this game to me, they were like, oh, it's really fun because like everybody like you know, there's like all this conflict and you get to screw people over and stuff. And I had never like really, um, when I, when I had played, it had been a very non-social game. Like it was just sort of like, I don't know, people like do their thing and don't talk that much. And like they go around the board, but I'm playing with three good friends of mine and yeah, it is a lot more fun. There's a lot of like, well, last week you screwed me over. So like this week, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and and then last night I won. So now I'm like, much <laughs> now you more like it. it. <laughs> uh, there, there we go. We've got. I think uh, that's. Yeah. I mean, this is also something that might correlate with some people not liking certain board games is like just how addictive it is and how zealous people get about it. And I think Catan, especially after you get a taste of winning, it's it kind of feels like I don't know. It feels a little bit. When you're on the inside, it feels really exhilarating and exciting, but I think I could imagine as, or I've experienced this too, not necessarily with Catan, but other games, like when you hear other people talk about it, you're just like, calm down, it's just a game, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, okay, how much of Settlers of Catan is luck? 
Um, I haven't played it enough to get like a real. I've played it sense. enough to know that with the groups of people I've played with, all, the same people win the majority of the time. Like it's there's definitely some people who win a lot and some people who almost never win. So it can't. Samina's being modest. No, She's no, the one who I'm wins not, all the time. No, no, no. <laughs> not, oh, really? I thought you were. The, yeah, my ex boyfriend won all the time. I barely ever uh, beat him. Um, interesting. I think I was like above average, but I wasn't. I wasn't one of the people who won all the time. Hmm. Um, so I don't think it's yeah. that much. I mean, there's definitely some luck, of course. But. Sure, yeah. There's there's also just the like. I mean, I I get the like. So Alexa, do you? Is it all games? Because I know some people just aren't into like board games. Period. I like, do. That's not their thing. I do think that I have like a bit of a bias against board games. Like the idea mm-hmm. of having a weekly board game night, I'm kind of like, uh, it's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm if I want to be that person. Um, and like people who have like a million different board games. There's something that, like, sounds exhausting about it to me, like, that you have to, like, learn these arbitrary rules of all of these, like, different games yeah. and, like, I don't know. But there are times when I really like them, so... I think with especially people, like, ones Katie that are kind Corker of social. is really good at knowing what, how to calibrate, like, what could this group realistically learn in the amount of time we have and what would they find uh-huh. fun. So, like, I'm amazed at the number of times Katie Corker has brought games and been like, we can do this in the time we have, and she was right. And yeah. I was, like, so skeptical yeah. at first, but... And she picks like, I think the that, right level game. Yeah, she. I think that that may be part of it, Alexa. That like the understanding what's right. Like, I think a lot of. Well, I, I shouldn't generalize. I think there are people who are into games who don't really think about the. They're they like they'll get excited and say, "Let's play this game because of the game." And uh, um, like Katie's a good example of someone who like thinks about the gameplay but also thinks about the people and the mm-hmm. social element of it and like makes all that stuff line up mm-hmm. and and that may be part of what's like for some people who've had like bad experiences or or have that aversion to yeah. like a weekly game night it's like and and for some people and it's totally fine like if you're just really into gameplay you should just find other people who are really into the same gameplay as you mm-hmm. are and that's totally fine but i think that that may be what i've definitely yeah. made the mistake of being like i remember i had a friend i was traveling with and i was like let me teach you this persian card game and then beat you at it the first 15 times we play <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. so you need to find a game that yeah like the new people could have a chance to win or else make it fun so that's not all about like there's some games where winning isn't really the issue yeah yeah like some are collaborative or I also think that like there's something about the way that games are marketed that doesn't appeal to me. So like I would be really into learning a Persian card game Um, (laughs) and generally card games sound cool to me. And so like older games or like very established games are interesting to me. But then like if it's like. Maybe know. I'll bring like my tarot cards games. to to sips because there's this French card game that you play. They're not the same tarot cards that people tell fortunes with, but it's like a deck of cards plus another suit, and they call them tarot cards. It's really fun. Huh. Yeah, and it's like it. a card game. Yeah. Yeah, I I haven't had like well I, I've had a weekly poker game for a while, but I haven't had a weekly like board game thing or a regular board game thing in a long time. But I. When I was when I was in college over the summers, when I'd come home and and there was this guy I knew who had like a regular Risk game, and that was like that's cool. It it was yeah. Do you it think was that's fun. cool? It, it was, yeah, How's that totally. cool, but Catan is not because it's Risk the is older world. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's the actual world. world. <laughs> so true, Sanjay. It's like I I didn't know before I played Risk that Kamchatka is a real place <laughs> or or whatever the place in Siberia is. Um, 
uh, that's how I learned geography. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was, but it was, it definitely had that like social element, right? Like we would like part of the, like people got really into the game and got competitive and whatever, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, like people weren't jerks. They weren't gloating. It was like, it was fun to be, you know, it was, it was fun to have a reason to get together over it. And yeah. the, the game was like the pretext for getting together. Yeah. I'm trying to turn Settlers of Catan Night into Euchre Night. Um, oh, but it's not working. Euchre's yeah. fun. Yeah, but people are resistant why, why to learning is, card why games. Why is Euchre not working? Well, it's... Okay, so there are two people, I think, that are interested in playing Euchre and know how. Um, me and my friend Pete. And then the other two people, Anna and Sophie, are more into Settlers of Catan. And I think Pete likes Settlers just as well. But Pete and I are more go with the flow than Anna and Sophie, who are... <laughs> are more assertive about what they want. <laughs> That's so interesting because I, I was, maybe this is because I went to college in the Midwest where euchre is like life for some people, but I always associate euchre with like cutthroat competition. Huh. Like I, yeah, that's fair. when I was in college, we played euchre all the time and, and people were like, like vicious and gloating, like in a funny way, yeah. but like mm-hmm. people really took it seriously. I love mm-hmm. euchre. It's so good. It's such a good game. I only learned it, it a few years ago from Joe Cesario. Oh, that's yeah, fun. that's interesting. Yeah, and there's something that, again, I'm so inconsistent. Like, I love about card games, the, like, weird inconsistencies. You know, like with Euchre, how, like, jacks sometimes are high and things like that. Um, <laughs> okay. But I hate that I about other games. I have to teach you this French game. Oh, it's so okay. much fun. Cool. I'm excited. I see. It's funny because I, I'm like, I know that I don't have the skill Katie Corker has, so I'm reluctant to try to teach other people card games because I know I'm gonna like way miscalibrate things, and then, so I need to teach Katie Corker the game so that she can teach, or decide whether to teach. Decide when to teach. <laughs> yeah. she, make her like the MC. Like you, yeah. you introduce her to the games, yeah, and then right. she, decides she decides what yeah. what you're gonna do. Mm-hmm. Cool. She probably already knows. Well, that we, she knows uh, everything? All the games. Should we do our letter? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, I'm an early career researcher. I am currently co-authoring a manuscript with members of my old lab group, and I am not completely happy with some aspects of the manuscript. It's not particularly bad per se. In some ways, I actually think it is a very high quality, but I think there is too much unsupplemented discussion of p-values, and though I offer to make materials openly available, it does not seem like this will ever happen. As someone who drank the New Methods Movement Kool-Aid a while back, I now find myself in an environment with people that are extremely pro-open science and changing practices. This is great, but I now worry that I might be called out for being a bit cowardly or hypocritical in signing off on this paper and not taking a harder stance on principles of open science and rigorous methods. Perhaps I should have declined to be a co-author. On the other hand, my old lab is coming around on these issues, and I know that they have some really cool plans for data sharing in another project, so I don't want to press the issue too hard now and risk missing it on future collaboration with them. I also admit that taking hard stance is not my strong suit, as I am quite conflict shy, and part of me really wanted my name on the paper after all the hours I put into this project. Do you think there is a line for when a researcher should decline to co-author a paper, and if so, what is it? Do you have any tips for how to respond to a paper? Um, respond if a paper receives criticism that you agree with, but your co-authors do not. Um, sincerely anonymous. So yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely identify with this letter. I think I've been in situations like this. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it is really tricky to decide at what point you feel like you can't put your name on a paper anymore so like at what point are 
the the practices just too far away from your own ideals to um, put your like stamp of approval on it, I guess. Um, so just making that decision, I think, is hard in itself. Um, and then there's also like this very challenging social dynamic, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, um, you could say like, well, if you if you can't stand behind the things that have been written in a paper, um, then like, you know, you are in a position where like you you just have to offend the other people on the paper. Um, there's like no way around it sort of. Um, but also it sounds like this person is sort of saying that they think that the people who are their co-authors are moving in the right direction. And so maybe there's like something to be said for um, not sort of like burning that bridge and being patient. I don't know. What do you yeah, guys think? I, I, uh, so there's one thing in here that I don't think on in isolation is as big a concern as the letter writer makes it sound. And that's the issue of feeling like they're going to be called out. Um, oh, yeah. Like, I, it's really, I'm sure this has happened, but it's really hard for me right now to think of instances of someone who is, like, generally sort of visibly, like, pro-open science, who was, you know, in their other work, and, and their name, they were one of multiple names on a paper, and people going, like, Samin, how could you put your name on that, like, that mm-hmm. thing or whatever? Like, like I said, I'm sure it's happened. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's not zero, but it doesn't seem like the, the norm or a common thing. And I think more often people might be like, oh, maybe it, it would have been worse if Samin wasn't on it or whatever. And even if know. it does happen, it's not that bad. Like, I, I've had a couple of times where uh, people tweeted things that, like there's only a one percent chance it was this but happened probably coincidentally to be exactly a valid criticism of something i had just been a co-author on um and i realized like oh i don't know if they're subtweeting me or not probably not but like actually now i realize that was a flaw with the paper or i knew that that was a flaw with the paper now i'm kind of embarrassed that that exact flaw is being called out right when our paper came out but i but i think like okay so what yeah like I, i think as long as you don't have to deny that criticism or that flaw if you have to do that, if your co-authors expect you to do that, just stand by the paper and deny that that's a flaw or like not acknowledge that it's a flaw, then I think that puts you in a really tricky position. But even if you do get called out, even if it's not going to be in a, it's very, very unlikely to be in a way that is really closed off to like your reaction, right? My people might ask you or they might point out, but if you react like, yeah, actually I wish that had been different or I completely agree and in the future I would like to do that, you know, I'd like to share the data in the future or whatever, I don't think... Be- the, there's going to be like backlash or something like that. I think it, there just might be the valid criticisms might get made. You have to respond to them, but even that isn't so bad. And the the modal response for a paper that comes out is nobody talks about it, right? And that is that's like the ninety nine percent, yeah, mode, right. right? Like that, you know. I saw a statistic the other day that something like we're now science is now publishing one point eight million papers <laughs> a year, like all of the sciences, and, and it's just like. Yeah, you're going to be in the 1.7999 million. But I think they're talking um, about like their probably. current colleagues looking at their paper coming out, right? Like it's true that mm-hmm. the people they share an office with or share a lab with now are, are probably going to pay some attention to this paper their name is. Yeah, yeah, be. but I I think I think right. I think it's it's not going to be like Twitter going crazy, yeah, mom, right? It's yeah. going to be someone someone that you know, talks to you and yeah. and the the letter writer says they think there are some aspects of the manuscript that are high quality and mm-hmm. so it's totally fine. I mean, I've said this about papers not having to do with p-hacking or open science or any of those things, but just like 
you know, yeah, I thought this was a valuable project for reasons X, Y, Z. And, you know, if, if it had just been up to me, I would have analyzed the data differently or done this thing different or whatever. But I thought mm-hmm. it was reasonable enough and that the paper was still worth doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like any reasonable person is going to accept somebody saying that because we all understand anyone who's co-authored a paper understands you don't get everything the way you want it to and if if so Mm -hmm. I mean what I would say to the letter writer is like if your holistic judgment is that it's this paper is better off existing than not Mm -hmm. then go with that and you know and and as part of a collaborator team you don't get to dictate everything and yeah there are some things that you do sometimes have to take a hard stand on. Um, I'm not getting the vibe from the letter that like the issues are so egregious mm-hmm. um, that they feel like you know it's it, they have to walk away from it. Yeah. But do you guys have things like that that are clearly over a line where you? For, yeah. Yeah. Like if I don't agree with the interpretation of the main point, I think that for me is a big one. Like if. If mm-hmm. I think maybe the analyses were even done right and blah, 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 but I think it shows X and they think it shows Y or they think it shows an effect I think it doesn't or they think it leads to a clear conclusion I don't think it does or that kind of thing, then I will usually walk away if like we, we can't come to an agreement on the main point. Yeah. Um, and how do you go about that? Like, have you figured out a diplomatic way to say, like, I don't want to be involved with this paper anymore? Uh, well, so usually these, I, I think it's important from the beginning to have a clear idea of who's the lead and and the gen- general like if there's an irresolvable irreconcilable differences then the lead team or person gets to the final say and anyone who doesn't agree can drop out after you know lots of discussion and so when uh, this is cases where i've been not in the lead person or lead group um then i just say look i don't want to make you guys do <laughs> what my idiosyncratic thing so i'm just gonna let you guys do what you want and take myself off like it's i think it's the generous thing to do or like it seems like it would be best for everyone right like I'm going to either I'm going to hold up this paper until I can convince you or you convince me or I let mm-hmm. you guys move on and take my name off of it. I, I think generally in the situations I've been in that, I think every, I, I, it would be interesting to know. I suspect there weren't too many hard feelings and it was more like, yes, we would rather you do that than keep harassing us about this. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that's a common thing? Like, I mean, I mean, I know, Samin, you're talking the way you're talking. It sounds like this isn't a hypothetical this has happened to you like this has not ever happened to me I've not Mm. I've not even come close to wanting to take my name off of a paper before I don't know what that says but like I'm curious like you know you must choose collaborators wisely I guess (laughs) has this happened to you Alexa or have you taken your name off or have you been close to taking your name off of a paper I don't think that I've taken my name off of a paper um there have been I think I've been in a few different situations. So I've been in a situation where I feel not not great about everything in a paper, um, but maybe sort of like the person who wrote the letter. Um, like I feel like there are strengths and it's not ideal to me, but I don't think that it's like um, a crossing a line. And I, I sort of like push that to the point that I think is reasonable. So I do always like voice my preferences and like concerns and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, if I'm not, if I'm not a lead on a paper, then um, yeah, there are certain things where I'll back down and just sort of like accept the fact that I'm not a hundred percent sold on every aspect of the paper. Um, I've had a paper where I was the lead and we had like written it up a certain way and then we had collected more data and the new data was very inconsistent with 
the original data basic like you could think of it as loosely as like we fail to replicate our own effect or whatever um and in that case the other people who were on the paper with me wanted to like find a way to reconcile the two studies and i just i decided not to do that and we just let that slide basically so nothing ever came of that paper um yeah i think I it's know. probably pretty common that papers just don't get submitted or don't get finished because the authors can't agree i, I know of cases mm -hmm. where that's happened I don't think it's super common that people take themselves off papers. I think partly I can afford to do that and partly yeah, I've I've agreed to some collaborations before really understanding what everyone's goals were and so on. So then that was kind of my fault that I started off thinking we had close enough ideas that it would work out and then I realized that wasn't the case. Um, so I don't think it's super common, but I think it happens. But I've definitely also, I just want to be clear, like I've definitely many times been in the situation that I agree Sanjay is my perception of the letter writer, which is like, I don't think that this case would cross the line for me. I would keep my name on. I think what I would do is I would make sure the co-authors know what my concerns are and also wouldn't be surprised if someone publicly voices that concern and I publicly said, yep, I yeah. agree. Like right. I don't necessarily need to the... like explicitly tell my co-authors I'm gonna do that, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to them if that happens. Right, yeah, right. Which I think is part of like why it is important to at least like voice your concerns and where you stand on issues, even if you're not going to insist on that being changed mm -hmm. or you're not mm -hmm. going to back out of the paper if it doesn't get changed. Um, a part of the question that the letter writer asked is like, what do you do? Like, how do you respond to criticism when you agree with the criticism? And I think what you're saying, Samin, is like, you should be allowed to say like, yes, that's a fair criticism of the paper, even mm -hmm. if not all of your co-authors would feel the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think, the, you know, it depends on the context if it's a private conversation or a talk or a, or Twitter or whatever, right? But I, I think, like, across the board, you know, it's important to do that, one, in a way that, like, you should be able to say why you thought it was worth doing anyway, right? So, so make sure the things that you thought were good that you can say, like, you know, and that, that the, whatever your criticisms are, like, you do have to feel like there are things you can tell somebody that there are things that you were willing, that you didn't like, but or weren't your preference, but you were willing to deal with, to, to live with. And I think you have to do it in a way that doesn't throw your co-authors under the bus mm -hmm. to like, you know, you, 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 you should, when you're talking about it, um, be kind to your co-authors perspective. Um, you can say you totally disagree with it. That's fine. But that, you know, treat it as valid. Um, well, so can, can I push back on people that? with, well, just let me. Yeah, that, that I, I think I think you if if you're having a conversation with someone and you're like, well, I didn't want to do it this way. My co-authors did. You you owe it to like present the good faith case for why your co-authors did it. If there is one, if there's not, then just don't. Well, what it, if it's right? something but, like, but, like sharing materials or data and it wasn't like legal or ethical concerns? Like you don't think there were like good reasons not to. I agree that you should I be as you kind did, yeah. as you can be, but I don't think you would completely have to protect your co-authors. Like if if like no, you I'm liked everything about the paper them. but they didn't post the data and you really think that it would have been better to post the data, I think it's fine to say, yeah, I really would have preferred yeah, that we, we post the data. No, we don't we don't I don't think we disagree on this. Yeah. I'm saying you don't throw them under the bus. You don't say like yeah, look, they they're trying to cover it up. Or right, they, right, right. They're just not on board with this open yeah. science stuff or whatever. Like you I would in that specific situation I just say I, I would have liked to share the data. My co-authors 
didn't want to share it and I decided to go along with that. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's fine. Yeah, that's okay. that's not throwing your co-authors under the bus. Okay. And that's, that is being kind to them. It's, <laughs> it's you know, it's giving, that is, if, if like they don't have a good reason, then just yeah. saying they didn't want to do it is the best version of right, their right, case, right, right? right? That's, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. But I, I, you know, I, I, I think that there's like a larger sense in which, you know, collaborations are almost always going to raise on some scale, whether it's a very small or large, like the whole point of collaborate or not the whole point, but a big part of collaborating with people is like, we're smart people who don't all see things the same way. Right. And so um, I think time and again, you'll be in some version of this, whether it's a small interpretive, whatever, whether it's a big like, you know, thing. Um, and, you know, and, and yeah, this, this feels like sort of, I think the lines of walking away for me, like I said, I also, I just, I, you know, and I realize it sounds like the letter writer already did this, but, you know, I always try to like find some kind of like compromise or whatever, where like, this is more about interpretation than about like sh data sharing mm -hmm, or whatever, mm -hmm. but that, that, you know, you, can we write a discussion section where we present both perspectives mm -hmm. where we say like mm -hmm. one way to interpret it. Like, I think yours is wrong. You think mine is wrong. So we're each going to have something that's wrong in the yeah. that we think is wrong in the discussion, but we're also going to have like, you know, I've seen papers go as far as actually saying in a discussion section, like the author, they'll explicitly say the authors yeah. disagreed. I handled Here's a paper a paragraph like that. that so and so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are kind of fun to read, actually. Yeah, I yeah. really I enjoy like reading too. those. I wish more people would do that. Yeah. And interestingly, the paper I handled that was like that had a pre-registration. So even with a pre-registration, the authors disagreed oh, wow. about how to interpret the results. Oh, which is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Huh. I think we could do a whole episode on like when to walk away from a project if we haven't already. Maybe we did. I don't know. But I think that would be interesting. Yeah. If only we I've, kept I, a record, I mean, record yeah. of these things. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've definitely got, gotten away from projects, not for these kinds of issues, but just because I'm overworked and, yeah, and, and whatever, too thin. Yeah. you know, and that, that would be, maybe we should do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that would be, that yeah. would be a cool topic. Yeah, and just this morning or, I wrote an email where I said, oops, I was overly optimistic about being able to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, well, this is a good, okay, so so this is a good setup for, we were talking about how, like, uh, um, yeah, like, if if people have want to write us letters, this would be, if you're in that situation, this is a good way to get us to talk about something, is to send us your dilemma mm -hmm. to letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com, listeners. So if you have especially like a, a specific situation that that you want to give us a chance to talk about um so a conflict with your co-authors if you have a uh or you're like not um, sure if something is worth doing or not like and not just papers right but there's all kinds of things you get yeah. you have opportunities to do and you're like is this worth doing is this a good use of my time or not that's oh, pretty yeah, that's, i feel like that, that's like you have the to majority know majority of just like difficult decisions in my life right, in right, general right, yeah. are just like is this worth doing so we'll like just do therapy like, for Sanjay during our letters time <laughs> I feel like that, like my biggest existential questions are like what is my, my what is job? worth my time is this worth doing like, <laughs> <laughs> breathing yeah. today is that worth getting out of bed is I had a, like I had an email so from that. a committee on campus and they're like are you willing to chair this committee and it like took me like three hours of thought to decide whether or not I was willing to chair this committee which is like longer than the service requirement of chairing that committee it's amazing how hard it is to know like am i a yeah. dick if i say no 
do I want it? Am I missing out on something if I say no? Or like, yeah, all mm-hmm. these different yeah. things. Yeah, I, that... saw, I saw a really good tip that uh, I think Jay, Jay Van Babel tweeted this. He, it's this like the mental heuristic is like, what if I what if it was due this week? Yeah, would I do it? And he, and the idea is like someday it's going to be due this week, and you're probably not going to have started it before a week in advance. Yeah. And so like there's going to be a version of you in the future that's just as busy as you are now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I can I I don't do a great job of of thinking that way, but I that sometimes that can offer some clarity like yeah just don't don't think of this as this thing that has to be done in three months think of it as like if i was as busy as i was as i am right now yeah and i was like in the thick of this would i feel good or bad about it yeah that's for things where there's like no service or obligation side of it it's just an opportunity my Mm -hmm. strategy for those is like if i can say no i should say no i should only say yes to things where i'm like oh my god it feels so painful to say no to this thing because i want to do it so badly then i say yes but i think i have a harder time with things where i have some ethical obligation to do it but not a clear ethical obligation to do it Mm -hmm. i find that harder are you going to be on the committee? Well, so if or you not have one me? of those li- listeners, if you have one of those dilemmas, write to us. Yeah. Too. <laughs> what did you say, Alexa? Are you going to be on the committee or not? So it's interesting. I wrote back this like long email about like, on one hand, I could do this part of it well, but I can't go to all these other meetings. And like, I don't know if it's fair to say yes, if I can't do this other part. And then they wrote back and they're like, how about you just be on the committee and not chair it? And then you don't have to go to all those other things. I was like, that sounds perfect. So actually it mm-hmm. turned out that my like, long convoluted response was useful because there was a role that fit exactly what I was willing to do. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, thank you anonymous for your, for your letter. And yeah, listeners, if you have, uh, um, a, a thorny situation with an advisor, with saying no to something with, uh, collaborators, you can email us letters at the com. We love getting letters um and uh yeah if you don't already know we're on twitter at black goat pod we're on facebook facebook.com slash black goat pod we're on instagram instagram.com slash black goat pod um you can rate us on itunes and stitcher and all that other stuff and yeah so for our main topic today we wanted to talk about uh interacting between grad students and faculty when they're not advisor advisee so like what are what are the issues involved when you know whether it's giving critiques and feedback whether it's starting up collaborations other other kinds of things that go on like um you know do we stick with the feudal medieval model of like you know you're in my fife and not anybody else's or like how do you swing that uh when as from from both sides i guess we've we've all been on both sides of that i think like what are what are the issues should you know yeah what are the issues do Mm -hmm. do i mean even though the like it's interesting we were talking a little bit earlier about like the ownership language that often goes like Mm -hmm. my graduate student my advisee Mm -hmm. my lab i do that all the time yeah yeah well it's funny because my can be like like when i say like my partner i don't mean that i own her Mm -hmm. i sure hope i don't mean that but you know but i i feel like that so like my is is like generic whatever it just means connected to me but it does kind of take on these like sort of possessiveness overtones I think in academia because Mm -hmm. when we're talking about like up and down a power structure or whatever and advisors have very explicit differences in how like some will very honestly say like if you're 
if I admit you, then you don't work with other people or you don't work with other people without mm. me also in the collaboration or, you know, there's various versions of that. And they're pretty, sometimes they're pretty out in the open. Not all advisors are transparent about it, but. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have um, expectations of how your students, how your students interact <laughs> with other faculty? Um, so I have two questions, but maybe they're, they're quite separate. But one is, do you have expectations for how they start projects with other faculty? And my other question is like, do you have, would you be like upset if your student started talking about you to like complaining about you say to another faculty member? Um, I think my views about the first question have evolved over time. So I think I used to feel more like they should tell me or have a conversation with me, not necessarily get my approval but have a conversation with me before they start a collaboration with another, with someone outside the lab. But I don't think I think that anymore. I still would want them to be transparent with me. I want to know what their time constraints are. So I know what to expect from in our projects and so mm-hmm. on. But I don't think, I think my views have cha- shifted towards like, it just is completely their decision. If they want my advice, I'm happy to give it, et cetera. Especially because I, um, I rarely pay my grad students from my own funds that they're either TAing or they're getting paid from a fellowship right. from the university or from NSF or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm realizing more and more that I really actually have no authority over how they spend their time. And I'm right. lucky if they want to spend some of their time with me. Um, mm-hmm. I want to know. So yeah, I'm not like, why didn't you do this thing this week? Because I don't know about all the other things they're doing or whatever. Um, but I think I've shifted towards pretty much it's up to them. I definitely like don't want them to commit me to collaborating on another project. So if they're expecting me to also collaborate, then they would need definitely need to run that by me. Um, yeah, the, I think I feel basically the your same first way. Question. Mm-hmm. Your second question, no, I don't. I, I think they should be allowed to complain about me to other faculty. Mm-hmm. Do you agree, Sanjay? Yeah, I think I agree, I agree on both counts. Like, I feel very similar that you know, if we're if we have a project or a collaboration, you know, like if they're doing something that impacts on their time or their ability to do it, that's a concern because of the project or the collaboration, but it's not, it's not an issue because they owe it to me as their advisor to get my permission or something like that. Um, you know, our program, our graduate students are required to work with someone who's not their main advisor. We have mm-hmm. this, like we call it a supporting area project. So it's it's part of the culture in our department as well that, that we're much less of a kind of siloed. Uh, um, and I, I really like that. I, I That's closer to how my grad school experience was. Um, it's I think we're even further in that direction than my own grad experience was. But um, I, I want my students to be I think they're they're going to be better scholars if they've learned things from people besides me. I know that I have limitations, both sort of intellectual limitations, like I don't know everything, I don't know how to do everything, and then also like I learned a lot from working with different advisors who had different styles about other things, about how they manage projects and how they, you know, just approach different things, and I want them to have that experience too because I think they'll be better off if they have that. So so yeah, no, I I um and it's often led to, like, I don't expect them to bring me into a collaboration, but but sometimes they just go and work with someone else, and that's great. And sometimes they're like, oh, it would actually be cool to work with you and this other person. And, and I've gotten brought into some really cool collaborations that way. So it's like it does have these kind of benefits for me. Mm-hmm. The, the second issue that, that you brought up, like, I, I also I, I feel like 
and again, we're, we're trying to build more of this into our, how we do our advising where now, so our students have an advising committee that they have to meet with once a week, once a year, that's, that's like multiple faculty. And we've now, and we're still working out how these go down, but there's now supposed to be a part of the meeting where the advisor is not in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think the the way I always, when I'm the non-advisor, so I'm still in the room for that, the way I talk about it with students is I'm like, if you're having difficulties or if there are things we need to know about, this is the time to bring them up. But mm-hmm. even if not, like part of the goal of this is like, this is a really important relationship you have in your life. And we want to sort of coach you or mentor you about how to manage that really important relationship. So even if things are going well, I see value in that, like talking to Mm -hmm. other people about like, how can I get the most out of my advising relationship or how can I, the things that Sanjay's not good at, like what are some other places, resources I can go to, people I can talk to, et cetera. So I I hope, like I'm very aware, sometimes painfully aware of my own limitations and I don't want, I I would feel bad if I thought my limitations were hampering my graduate students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is really important, especially because the advisee advisor relationship is first of all such a huge part of your life during grad school um but also it's like something we don't really have other models for and so i think many people are in situations with their advisors or advisees where things could be better than they are but people don't have any other examples um of like a better way to uh, to do things or resolve things or whatever so I think it is important to be able to talk to other people and see how other advisors work and things like that. Um, yeah, so I think my grad students should be able to talk about me to other faculty. Um, but I would hope they would talk do you to guys me have, too. Do you guys have like worries or insecurities as advisors yes <laughs> for sure <laughs> i Thank saw okay, there good. was that document yeah. going around about all the like different toxic or bad mentoring styles and one of them was exactly me <laughs> and i was like it was like the jet setter advisor or something who's like never around and i was like i think out of it was like listed last and i think they were kind of in order of like worst to least bad and i was like at least i'm the least bad of the really bad <laughs> kinds of advisors no i feel really uh-huh. self-conscious about that and i wonder whether i should not take grad students or take even fewer I mean I have a pretty small lab but whether even that is more than is responsible for someone with my schedule or preferences Um, it's so hard to know because I'm like well on the dimension of being present on a daily basis in the department physically I'm terrible but I think I'm okay on dimensions like getting drafts back to students or responding to emails so it's so I'm like but then am I rationalizing or not anyway yes the answer to your question is yes (laughs) Mm mm-hmm Sorry, that was that was a little bit of a tangent. I'm, no. I'm this is mostly for my validation. No, I, yeah. Those, but, uh, I mean, I do think we, we should, should do an episode sometime about like how many grad students should we take, and and specifically depending on the kinds of advisor you are, should you take grad students or fewer grad students? I yeah, think that's yeah, a yeah, really yeah. important question. <laughs> probably, yeah. probably the one most of the most of the kinds that shouldn't be taking grad students don't have enough self right which actually relates to one of the questions i wanted to ask about today's topic which is let's say you have a colleague that's in that category who shouldn't be taking students but doesn't have the self-awareness to know that then should you intervene both okay so let's say it's at the interviewing stage so they have a prospective student you have a one-on-one meeting with that student they're like i'm so excited to work with so and so and you know that they have a very consistent track record of being a negligent advisor or like not fulfilling their responsibilities in some important way i mean I think whether you should say anything then is complicated. 
whether you should reach out to their current students to offer to help or I don't know, like show that you recognize that this is a crappy situation or like, yeah, I mean, and, and I don't necessarily have that situation now, but across the various places I've been, both as a grad student or faculty, like at some of those stages, I've been in a situation where I might have been able to help if I reached out, but it's so politically tricky to intervene in a, an advisor advisory relationship that you're not part of. I mean, if you're like the system at Oregon is nice because you have an official role as an outside as a committee member who's not the advisor where you're supposed to be checking in on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think some of some of that has been like our realization, you know, because things don't. I mean, I'm I'm describing the system as we're trying to implement it, and obviously, like it, it doesn't always, you know, work out the way you'd hope to, and so we're always trying to improve it. But I think some of that has just been a realization that we need an organizational response to that issue. Like it mm-hmm. can't mm-hmm. if if you know if at whatever scale it is, whether it's small everyday things that, that the kinds of things, you know, we've, we've been talking about or like the bigger, like someone, there are consistent issues or whatever you, you have to be in a, I think, I think that demands an organizational response. So I, I'd say for today's topic, like from the faculty perspective, if there are colleagues of yours, you know, the, the, that's probably something that aside from just you personally intervening with the students, which may be a thing that you, can do like I think it's I think people have to be talking about how to sort of try to address that and that's a, it's a difficult issue for because they're always these things are always really complicated and the kind of the pinnacle of the like just the the unilaterally terrible advisor like I those I mean I again previous mm-hmm. places I've been I've seen that kind of thing happen not not here at Oregon but um uh uh I yeah, it's a. Um, I think the more complicated issues are like variability or things like that. Um, but it's tough because I'll you know, if often the the faculty that are seeing this are junior faculty, and so they're mm-hmm. they're in a difficult position. Like if it's their more senior colleagues or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, one of the phenomena that that happens I've seen happen. It happens to me. I've seen it happen to others. Is like the new faculty shows up. And everyone's really excited because they're new and different. And all the really good students whose advisors are okay with them working with multiple people come and want to want to like talk to them or have them mm-hmm. on their committee be a project. That's great. And then all the the students that are like the, the lost souls <laughs> like mm-hmm. gravitate towards mm-hmm. them. And you're this new faculty member, and the people who either, either themselves maybe are struggling or they're in a difficult lab and they show up, and you're like this brand new assistant. You're like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so when so if a student came to you and said I want to collaborate on a project with you, would you ask Have you checked with your advisor that this is okay? No, I don't. I don't. I, I mean, don't think it's I hard. would. Yeah, what if you know that their advisor is the kind of person who's not okay with this and is going to get pissed? <laughs> then I would. I mean, I, it's a hypothetical because I don't have any. I can't think of any colleagues I have who are like that. What if it was a professor imagine. at another university, but you know well enough yeah. to know that they are like that? I yeah, would that's probably a good present question. that. I would probably present that to the student, not as right. like you a master yeah. advisor, but to say I would say like, I you know from what I know of your advisor, they might be upset if they knew we were working together. I'd present mm-hmm. it to them more as like, for your interest, yeah. have you thought about making you know because this relationship is important yeah. to you. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't present it as like 
you owe it to them because they own you. Right, it would right, be more like, yeah. this is going to make waves for you. So my advice is talk to, but I wouldn't say like, I ref- if you right, don't yeah. talk to your advisor, I refuse to work with you. I don't it would know. Be more like, yeah. I would take maybe a harder stance than that. Like, so there, I can definitely imagine situations where I'm not like checking in about that because it's not on my mind. Mm-hmm. But I would think it was pretty weird if a student wanted to work with me and wanted to keep it from their advisor. Uh, I don't think I'd be comfortable with that. That's such a, like, what a weird thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in, right, yeah, no, that's a good point. Like, I think in that case, it, w- it would depend on whether, like, I felt like I was, I mean, if, if somebody, if a student feels like they need to keep things from their advisor, there's something going wrong, right? right. So it would yeah. depend on what I, th- like, if I think that this person is, has a shitty exploitative advisor, I'd approach that very differently than if I think this person is kind of like clueless and tone deaf or mm-hmm. the reason this person has this bad relationship is because they are the source of the problem or whatever, right? Like, um, yeah, that is. But I, 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 I guess what I'm, what I, what wouldn't be driving my decision is just this general sense of like grad students. Yeah, you need to ask permission to, to do these things. Yeah, right? I agree. It's like, yeah. like, you know, asking you know asking your bride's father for permission <laughs> to propose or whatever it sort of has that like very paternalistic yeah kind of definitely feel to it yeah so I've noticed myself having a reaction to grad students presenting their work recently that I think reveals some implicit um, assumptions I have about like the their advisor's responsibility for them and their work which is that like I'll see people um, present work at like a a brown bag or um, perhaps like a thesis meeting or a dissertation meeting. And I won't like feel sure about um, how direct I should be with my criticism um, because I'll be, I'll think that like, oh, well, this must be like coming from your advisor. You must have done it this way or that way because of your advisor. And so it feels mean or something to criticize them for something that I'm attributing to their advisor. But I think I should try to get out of that mentality and, I don't know, ascribe all of their decisions to them or, or like, expect them to take responsibility for everything that they've they've done. And, and like, also, it's complicated by the fact that sometimes I do know that they, they would have liked to make different decisions except for, um, you know, their advisor told them to do it one way or whatever. I could imagine an extreme case where they actually want people to raise those criticisms, especially if their advisor's there, because then I have been that, that gives situation. them some evidence that it's not just them that wanted to do it the other way. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the I've seen this play out, and so I'm always like trying. I'm, I'm like aware of trying not to fall into this. The like you see this dynamic sometimes where it's basically like a proxy war between two faculties. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, one one is the U.S., one's the Soviet Union, and the student is Vietnam or something. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, you know, um, they're just... Like, the, clearly the two faculty disagree on something, and they're, they're just, like, taking it out on the poor student. Um, and so I, I, you know, I don't think I have that relationship with any of my colleagues. Maybe I do and don't realize it, but, like... I yeah so I would I would try to try to ask myself like what yeah like what's good for the student and and they at the very least like it's often good for them to be exposed to the criticism so even if they Mm -hmm. agree with their advisor like they should be able to answer the same kinds of questions 
try not to ask them in a badgering or, or sort of domineering way, but like to present them, you know, present the content of the criticism so that they have an opportunity to respond to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, in the in the usually more ambiguous situation where you don't know what they think, maybe they haven't thought it through and they're just doing it because their advisor told them or yeah, like you said, Samin, maybe they disagree with their advisor and they need someone else to say it so their advisor will listen to them. I think I think all of those you can kind of approach in a similar way where you just sort of present it in a try to be in a really constructive way. I think there are some place some cases where I don't even bother, which is when it's like I'm pretty sure it's lab dogma to do it a certain way and I just it would be like opening this much bigger can of worms. Right, right. Um then I might not want to put the student make the student have to answer for like a very widespread practice in their lab or their department or their whatever that mm-hmm. they don't have much flexibility about. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So like all of these things, the the background to, to a lot of these dilemmas is the way we do graduate training right now, which is very much this apprenticeship model that you have an advisor, you you know, whether whether it's the totally siloed, you only ever work with this one person, or even the more flexible models, it's still the case that like you have a primary advisor, you're their apprentice, um, you know, more or less exclusively or whatever, like, I, something I've wondered about is whether like, are there other ways that we could structure doctoral training? in psychology that would be even further away from that and and i don't know the answer because it i think there are reasons it's that way right like you have to specialize and you have to get some amount of depth and things take a while to learn but like can you imagine a different way of structuring grad school that would still produce high quality training but that would have even less of that silo or less of that apprenticeship i i mean my answer will not be offering an alternative, but advocating for the apprenticeship model, which is just that, like, I guess the thing that comes to mind for me is times when I've seen co-mentorship, like people try to co-mentor people. Um, and in situations where there isn't really like a primary mentor, I think those usually go badly. Um, and I think that there is something like really important. Um, I guess like the negative the negative phrasing would be like, you know, some sense of ownership over your student, but like the more positive version is like some responsibility, you know, some feeling of responsibility for like making sure that they're doing okay and making sure that they have what they need and recognizing that it's your job to be there as their primary advisor. And I think that's something that, not that there are no alternatives, of course, but I think that's something that spreads that out over two people or more um, loses something about the sense of like, this is, yeah, there's something, there is something nice about this. Like, this is my student. Yeah. I think but, I mean, could, uh, could you create that monitoring and, and responsibility without having it be your research advisor? I mean, I, that, cause that, it seems like that issue is because you're trying to squeeze that into the current system. Right. So would it be possible to create graduate training where there was somebody looking out for students' progress and interests, but they weren't necessarily well, the one that they're writing papers with? Or, I think it's hard because yeah. everything else in our job that's not our own research seems to always take lower priority to our own research for faculty at R1, and partly because of the reward structure. So if we, 
had like mentoring and training responsibilities that were not related to our own research, we would probably treat them the way we treat teaching right now. And I think that wouldn't be good in most cases. But I do think, I don't have an opinion about which is the better model, but I think the other model, which is I think what econ does, and I'm sure many other disciplines, is where they don't have a primary advisor for the first few years, but they have really intensive coursework. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the training that we currently give in the context of our lab they give in the context of coursework with like actual grades that matter and like people failing and things like that um and i see pros and cons one i think there's like a i think many people in psychology wouldn't like that because they want to train their students how they want to train them and they don't necessarily agree with the way their colleagues would train them if it was through coursework that was a fixed curriculum but that's kind of the same thing as researcher degrees of freedom like it's like saying well i think this is the right way to do things and that that's great to have that flexibility and creativity and freedom, but it can be taken way too far and some students are going to get terrible training. So I could see some advantages of standardization to the extent that we have clear reason to think there's a best way or best current practice for some things and not just leave it up to each individual advisor to decide how their students should be trained. But I do think, I think I would like to see more coursework with more actual guidance and training than we currently have in psychology but I agree with Alexa's point about things falling through the cracks if you don't have a someone responsible for you. Yeah. Do you, do you think that would, I mean, if you tried to implement the econ model and you sat down with your colleagues to say what goes in this curriculum, do you think that would? Because no, like my, but that's my impression a, that's of a econ, symptom of the problem in the field. I think. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not sure that the graduate training could lead that, right? So I think mm-hmm. my impression of econ is that there's a much larger body of knowledge yeah. that everybody agrees everybody should but we know. Sh- yeah. That's why they structure it that way. So like the and also it's less maybe less heterogeneous, but you know, not like sure. whenever we try we always at the level that we have it, we always have these difficulties of like should we be making social psych students learn Cogneuro or whatever. Um, but also, like, there, I mean, there is value in, like, heterogeneity and diversity of approaches, diversity of theoretical schools and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if we... I, know, I completely yeah, agree that I think there would be no consensus. I don't know if that's what you were implying, but I think there would be almost no consensus, even for the more technical side of things. So forget content, but even just, like, research methods. So my graduate program at Davis doesn't have a required research methods course. We only have required stats courses. And I think if we tried to say there should be a required research methods course which seems reasonable we wouldn't agree on the content but i think that we need to deal with that problem and maybe you're right that graduate training is not where that needs to start but the fact that it's so implausible that a department that's a single discipline could agree on what should be required training even just on the method side of things is a is a problem and i think it's a disservice to our students that we're not working on that and trying to come up with some curriculum that is like actual training, not just taking classes for the sake of taking classes, but like actual training where you could actually fail to learn stuff if you, yeah, I don't know. I think there's some benefit to having requirements that are real requirements that are not left up to the individual advisor. Hmm. But we're very, very far from that. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think it's realistic anytime soon. I've never thought about that, that there would be like such a big lack of consensus in terms of like what our what grad students should learn, yeah. um, I don't disagree. I guess, but yeah, I I guess I'm I'm trying to think through like how much of that lack of overlap would be because of intellectual disagreements, and how much of it would just be because of specialization, mm-hmm. right? So like, 
like my students, we do a lot of round robin interpersonal perception stuff. So they need to learn the social relations model. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of them for projects they work on and students in other labs don't. So mm -hmm. should that go? And there's not, it's not like an intellectual disagreement yeah. with my well, colleagues about the SRM. It's just like, oh, that right. some, some need to know that some don't. Then if, um, I mean, if we keep the apprenticeship model, then we need to vet people to be only good advisors who are have who are like are meeting their obligations as advisors should be allowed to continue right it's <laughs> crazy to have almost no curriculum that's at the at the department or area level have leave almost everything up to the individual lab and have no quality control of how good of a job the individual lab is doing at training students yeah that's a really good yeah. point like uh i don't know if you guys have this in your department but i don't think we have any kind of formal way for evaluating people as advisors. I mean, I'm, I'm sure my like grad students could complain and you could get a bad reputation as an advisor. Um, and it's hard because you know, they couldn't record, do that anonymously. Like, There's no way that you wouldn't know who complained <laughs> if that happened. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right. Yeah. But me, I mean, there could be other ways of evaluating somebody as an advisor yeah. without. Yeah, I mean, um, ask, doing an exit interview like, when they're when their trainees leave, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the way the, the, and I'm not saying this is good or defending this right, but the way, the way that you get quote unquote evaluated as an advisor is how many papers do students publish? What jobs do they go on to? So you're not, you're not evaluated on the process of advising. You're evaluated on producing certain outputs, which you can do it by being difficult or exploitative or whatever right you can right so so yeah um but i think a lot of people would say like oh that's how we evaluate advisors is we look at like are there students getting through the program requirements and then yeah, right. going on to get jobs that we all want to be impressed by or whatever mm -hmm. um, yeah. um there's another question that i wanted to talk about um regarding like interactions between um faculty and other people's students, which is the question of like, whether you can befriend your colleagues, students. Like as um, so socially, purely social, like actual friend, not just be friendly with, but like yeah. get close to. Mm -hmm. Colleague within your own department, you mean? Yeah, let's say that. I'm trying to think, I mean, I have people who are grad students in our program who I would say are I would say that they're my friends, but then my interactions with them are not the same as my other friends. It's still much more formal. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I could imagine a situation where I can easily imagine a situation where I would want to be friends with um, other people's grad students, but I haven't. I think if they're in your ever area, really done it. if they're in your area in your department, I think you you have a professional relationship with them. And so it would, you can't do something that ignores your professional responsibilities or like puts them in an awkward sure. position where, so I think there, there are pretty strong limits to how intimate or close you could be with a grad student who's like going to be taking courses with you, who you might be on the dissertation committee, things like that. Right. Um, once you get further from that, I think it's there, then it depends so much on the details of the specific case. But. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I met and became friends when you were a grad student. I was faculty. You were at another university. Right. And do you do you feel like the issues are like 
on a continuum with the issues of romantic relationships or is this like mm -hmm. a categorically different thing like that the question mm -hmm. of be, having like purely social friendships with grad students in your department in your program because I can kind of see both I could I could yeah I haven't thought about that before at all I'm asking this on the spot I could sort of off the top of my head probably make, make both arguments but uh yeah I think it might be a continuum because there are kinds of intimacy that have nothing to do with sex or romance, but that raise many of the same issues as right, a sexual like, or romantic relationship. Like if if you start crying on their shoulder or you start complaining to them about right. department stuff or whatever, if you, the faculty member, I mean, start mm -hmm. putting the grad student in a position where you're telling them things they're not allowed to tell their advisor or their peers or whatever, that's a kind of intimacy that they're not necessarily free to refuse or free to tell you that, that it's making them uncomfortable or maybe they may even want it, but it has these downsides for them. So I think there's a lot of, there's some parallels. I'm sure there's a lot of discontinuities too. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking like, like I think there are maybe one of the differences. I don't know if this is a qualitative or quantitative difference, but like, I feel like you can, you can do things like grad students and faculty in the same department can do things that, go a lot of the way down the road of what friendship involves but stop mm -hmm. somewhere like you know like I go out to beers with my lab mm -hmm, and we right. talk about things that aren't work and that's totally fine mm -hmm. and and if you're on a softball team with a yeah. grad student or you mm -hmm. know there's all these kinds of things where I wouldn't say the romantic relationships yeah, yeah. it's not like oh just go to second base and then it's fine <laughs> you, know, it's like, <laughs> you know that would that would be sort of absurd right so maybe mm. maybe that's I don't I don't know what kind of difference that is but right. yeah like I feel like it's 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 all, it would almost be weird to be like completely standoffish with all of graduate students yeah. and not, you know. Yeah, and but I, yeah, think there, harmful, I feel like there right? does have to be that line of maybe it's the intimacy part of friendship where the line has, like you said, Samin, mm -hmm. that's that's where the line has to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I do think that there is something like very good that can come from friendship type relationships between faculty and grad students. Um, yeah, I mean, as a graduate student, I think you just like gain some insight into the. Um, the life of somebody who's in the profession that you may want to have one day. Um, and also just like this, this sort of like broader idea of mentorship, right? Like, you know, asking for somebody's advice about personal stuff that also has professional overlap. Like, I think those kinds of things can be really useful and really healthy. Um, there is something that like starts to make me uncomfortable when you start to get into the territory of like a faculty member really sort of like becoming very like dependent on or relying really heavily on grad students or put placing a lot of pressure on them to play some kind of role. Um, so yeah, maybe my intuition is something like, like a friendship is okay, but maybe it should be, like, a friendship with an acknowledged power dynamic, like, you know. with And with certain boundaries that come with that. I think the more interesting cases are mm -hmm. when you get further away from your own area and department and so on. Like, I think, like, how far from your influence does a grad student have to be for you to, for it to be okay to be close friends with them as a faculty member? Like, clearly, if I wanted to befriend somebody who's a grad student in astrophysics, like, that, that seems fine to me, right? Like, so then, and then where, what about the gray area? Like, what if, like in the case of me and you, Alexa, where you were a grad student in social personality psych, but at a different university and we didn't mm -hmm. work on the same topics or have an, a lot of other connections. 
Personally, um, I think that kind of relationship is not okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's super inappropriate. But yeah, the gray areas are interesting. Like when, yeah, when how much distance is enough distance that the faculty grad student power dynamic becomes a small enough part that you could still have a close friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think bringing it to the analysis of power is for me probably just where I think the answer is going to come from. Whether it's mm-hmm. clear or not, that's that's the like mode of analysis you have to be in, where it's like we're not in the same department but we're in the same fields like you know because that I think the I think probably the you know the worry is that it becomes it risks becoming exploitative and you know that's that's where like some of these issues of like do I you know like I think the issue of like making yourself dependent on or or doing the things that in a normal relationship make you dependent that's where it gets really tricky because yeah like I can in some sense, be quote unquote intimate in the sense of like self disclosure, as long as I'm not asking for anything back from, like, if, if I'm talking to my lab and, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about personal stuff, um, there's a part of my mind that's like, okay, but don't don't ask for them to like give back, right, yeah. like sympathy, uh, like whatever. They can be sympathetic, yeah, yeah. In the moment, but you know what I mean. Right. Like, don't like do it because that's what you need, or yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, because that puts them in a really uncomfortable place. Right. It's like. If I'm disclosing, there should be a part of me that's like, okay, this 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 isn't going to make them feel unsafe or uncomfortable if they don't want to be here. Right. And Lord Lord knows if I've handled that right, I certainly try to think about it. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I feel like the, these kinds of boundaries. Um, but like you said, like when it's not, I think it's most clear when it's your lab and and your advisees, and and when when it's other people. I think sometimes. I mean, I think some people just don't think about the power issues at all, mm-hmm. and that those are the people that don't have good boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you do think about them, there are a lot of contexts where it's just not, you know, it's, it's I think, it, you know, if they're not at the same institution, like, where do you draw the line? Right. But I think when we do, I think the example of sexual harassment and, and that kind of thing is a good sort of um, comparison because it's like okay yeah you can you can see where like not being at the same institution is not a like good enough safeguard yeah it's not a green light yeah, yeah. Mm. yep are we gonna end on that yeah. <laughs> 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 we're we're about out of time. well like one connection ending. to what we were talking about earlier too is that like if we moved away from the apprenticeship model and from the idea that like an advisor owns their students or whatever which of course we shouldn't endorse but like the less that's the model in our minds the more it becomes important to have similar professional boundaries with other people's students quote unquote as you would with your own students because there shouldn't be that clear of a distinction between students that you advise and students that are in your general workspace right if they Mm -hmm. work around you then you have a professional obligation towards them and there's power dynamics and all that so helping to blur the line between my students and other people's students would also help with this like this, the, the reason why you need boundaries is similar for the students who work with other faculty as the students who work with you. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that okay to end on? Cheerful <laughs> note. <laughs> I think so. All right, cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening to The Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.